This episode is brought to you by Borderless. Paying and managing remote workers can be a difficult task for companies. With the shift to remote work, companies are hiring talent from all over the world. But once they bring on that engineer from Turkey or Mexico, they quickly realize the challenges of paying them on on an ongoing basis and managing them effectively. There are various issues that companies have to tackle, such as foreign exchange fees, delays in cross-border payments, managing invoices, and trying to stay compliant with local laws. These complications can cause headaches and wasted time for companies as they have to navigate a complex and ever-changing landscape of regulations and compliance. The process of paying and managing remote workers can be time-consuming, costly, and difficult to keep up with. It can also be a major distraction from the company's core business operations. That's where Borderless comes in. Their extensive experience in worker payments and contractor management has simplified this process for companies. They take away all the complexity of managing international contractors, allowing companies to put their contractor or employee on their platform and handle everything else. They take care of paying global workers and drafting local compliant contracts so companies can focus on what they do best. They also include the communication, task management, and compliance. And the best part? Borderless offers real-time payment to contractors in over 150 countries across the world, allowing contractors to access their funds quickly and easily. Their SaaS business model offers competitive pricing with a monthly fee of $39 per contractor or $399 per employee. Don't let managing remote workers hold you back any longer. Let Look Borderless be your global workforce management solution at HireBorderless.com. That's HireBorderless.com. Hello and welcome everyone. I am Evan McCann and this is The Hard Part. This show is a deep dive into the strategies, founding stories, and behind-the-scenes insights from Canada's top founders, investors, and leaders. My guest today is Arun Iyengar. Arun is the CEO of Untether AI. Untether AI provides ultra-efficient, high-performance AI chips, to enable new frontiers in AI applications. In this episode, we discuss why chip companies need to raise close to $400 million, what part of the AI market they are targeting, Untether's chips versus GPUs, the cost and importance of manufacturing, and the importance of IP remaining in Canada. Please enjoy my conversation with Arun Iyengar. Arun, I'd like to start with the backstory behind Untether. So did the company spin out of University of Toronto or was it Capic Integration? I know there was a few co-founders there. would love to learn a bit more about the origin of the company. Yeah, the company came out of Capic. The uh, founders of Capic, one of them used to be a professor at the University of Toronto a while back. So uh, the... The idea that he had was to use a concept called at memory compute, where you put the memory and the processing rate next to each other. He tried to do this back in the 90s with video. 
And it didn't really work well for video because video is a variable length content, right? In terms of how long your video clip could be. But then in the 2010s, when AI started becoming hotter, he said, okay, well, maybe we can dust it off and try it on, on AI. And because AI is so more, much more deterministic, it really is a very, very good. And so at that time, the three founders said, okay, you know, we're working together at Capic. Let's go try this out um, and spin up a new company. And of course, that company was on Tether uh, to see if we could actually take this product, commercialize it, take it out to market and you know, make a make a uh, industry out of it. And I'd love to talk a little bit about kind of commercial co commercialization. You know, it's a very like hot topic here in Canada right now with you know, how do we take all this innovation that's happening within universities or with professors and, and commercialize that? What do you think has really made Untether successful there? And it, it, do you think there's kind of a roadmap or a playbook to be followed? Or is it kind of unique to each company? I think the value that we had was the founders were multiple uh, uh, startup entrepreneurs, right? So they're serial entrepreneurs. And so they, you know, the whole concept of being an entrepreneur is to hit it right the first time is not necessarily going to happen to everybody. It might happen to quite a few, but it's definitely not the majority. And so what you're going to learn is, you know, the mistakes that you went through the last time and how you're going to hit that and fix that for the next one around. And so the whole thing is hinged upon experience. Experience, right? If you built it up at the University of Toronto or someplace else, um, then bringing uh, being experienced in academia is not the same as being experienced and taking it into a startup world and making it move forward. And so there is going to be the need to partner with someone else that can actually help commercialize it. And I think there's a lot of such activities that are going on for us in particular. You know, we ended up partnering with Intel Capital. Intel Capital was our uh, first uh, seed funder and they helped us quite a bit. And then during that process, of course, uh, we opened up and, you know, expanded the organization and uh, brought in a lot of people that had experience in the uh, semiconductor industry that could take it forward. And bringing in people with experience, I'd be curious to know how, how you landed at Untether. How did you find out about that opportunity? I know you have kind of background working at different chip companies and tech companies in the Bay Area. How did this opportunity come about and what really excited you about it? This was a link through uh, Intel Capital for me. So they reached out and said, hey, I've got this really amazing company. Are you interested in coming in and taking a look at them and, and leading them? And what I was at that point thinking about was, you know, AI was going to be the future. I mean, there's no such thing as, you know, is this a flash in the pan or is this something that's just interesting now and, and it'll die away soon? Yeah, it's not. It's here and it's here to stay. And, 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 uh, if you go back in time in the nineties, you know, when the chip industry was really strong, uh, there was this whole Intel, uh, plus Microsoft, right? The whole Wintel concept that used to be around windows plus Intel. And that was probably the last time when you needed hardware, uh, and software co-innovation to happen. Uh, and what happened from that point on was that hardware far exceeded the needs of software. And so the software uh, approach really didn't really need to understand the underlying hardware or what needs to happen there. But with AI, that's changed again. 
you really need to have a very strong hardware plus software approach to make it happen. And so, so I was looking at this going, okay, I really want to be in a pure play AI chip company. Um, not necessarily one of the other large companies that, you know, I was at that was looking to go into AI. I was looking to get into this uh, pure play company with technology that was compelling. And, and that was, you know, groundbreaking, if you will, with respect to the capabilities of what needs to happen. Because as you fast forward in terms of AI deployment, it's going to be pervasive. It's going to be across pretty much everything you can think of. And so you really have to have an architecture that can scale from small to really, really large, right? So being a data center all the way down into a much smaller form factor, like your phone or whatever else could be. So, so the concept to me was to look for an architecture that could scale really well. And, and that was where Antetta was really exciting because here was an architecture with the at memory compute architecture that could easily scale to a very large chip, which we can use in data centers and the cloud. Or if we chose to, we could make a much smaller chip that we could put in probably not into a cell phone, but maybe into a lot of similar uh, cell phone type applications. I'd love to understand a bit like the nuances of building a chip company. Like I know you raised a significant round, around 125 million from CPP, Intel, Radical Ventures, who's previously been on the podcast as well. What does that kind of capital unlock for the business? Like where do you have to invest in a hardware business? I, you know, there, there's not a lot of hardware businesses being started in Canada or just in North America in general. So I guess like, what are the nuances? Where does majority of that capital go? As I always tell people, semiconductor world, um, investing is not for the faint of heart. So if you want to come in and, and, you know, do a startup that does chips, or if you're a VC putting money into a startup, that's going to make chips, you really have to have a much longer term view and a much longer, uh, dollar appetite. The biggest component of the dollars that we raise and, and, you know, typically large chip companies like ours, there are others that do different kinds of chips that are really tiny chips. And so they're, I'm not including them, but companies like ours, where you're really out there to make a very high performance, high end chip, uh, you know, you're raising, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood of 250 to 350 million before it becomes reasonable. Right. And it's even more and more with all the inflation that's happening these days, that number is also going up probably close to 400 and above. So, so that's a lot of money you got to raise, right? Because that's the amount of money that you need to do a few things. First and foremost, you have to design the chip. To design the chip, you have to buy tools from the electronic data, uh, you know, manufacturing guys. Uh, so these are guys that provide the tools that actually allow us to design these chips. And these tools are not cheap. They're, you know, uh, in the seven figures and above. And, and so that's really where the money goes first. Uh, the second place your money goes is of course, hiring people, but people is not by far the largest component because even software companies have large number of people, but you know, so we do need the people, but you know, we need some specialized people, you know, the number of people that can do a really specialized silicon design is much different than can do a variety of different software tasks just because of the number of people that are targeted towards that. So, so that's our second oh, place of investment. 
The third, which is also a really significant one, is now that we have the design done, how do we get it manufactured? We can't manufacture it ourselves. So we go to uh, companies like TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductor. We go to companies like Intel Foundry or Global Foundry, right? So any one of those, we use TSMC, but, but any one of those could suffice. Uh, and, and that's where you pay some significant dollars again to get your chip manufactured. Now that's just the chip side of the equation. More than half the people that we employ are on the software side. And I'm talking software not related to the chip development, but software that runs on the chip. And so these are the people that can create the various kernels, compilers, right? The, the uh, software development kit, tool flow, uh, all of the elements that are required to take a neural net that some customer might want to deploy and make it simple so that the customer does not need to understand how our chip was constructed but essentially use the SDK, which provides a abstraction layer for them. And we take all the hard work underneath that to make sure that there is a right mapping. So that's, that's a lot of the uh, spend between the hardware side, which is broken up into the three components of the EDA tools, the uh, hardware employees, as well as the foundry and the software side, which is just basically employees. You know, that's really where all the money goes. I'd love to talk a bit about the use case for the, the chips that you're building. I guess, you know, just if we were to break it down, like relatively simply, you know, who is using it? Is it like an open AI that's building a large language model? Or are they, they using your chips to like better enhance like their performance in their business? Is it, you know, I know you have a partnership with General Motors to help their self-driving cars. I guess, what are some of the main ways that your chips can be used? And I guess would love to know kind of, you know, people just kind of refer to AI as this general concept. How do you view it as like different spaces to play in? At its top level, um, artificial intelligence is broken into two components for chips. One is training and the second is inference. So training is typically what happens in the cloud and it happens in large data centers. And it's something that you typically would use a, uh, you know, an NVIDIA GPU or somebody else's GPU to have to make the training happen. The um, transition from training to deployment, the deployment is called inference. So once you've got a trained model, now you're going to make it available to the masses or to, to the machine. So whatever you want to use it for, and that's, that's known as inference. And the inference part really is where we play. And we really target the inference um, market. And the inference market, that the areas of the inference market we target, we have four different uh, major markets within that. The first one is the vision systems. And vision systems include things like autonomous vehicles that, that you refer to, uh, things like um, smart city, smart retail. All right, the cashierless checkout is an example of a smart retail. Uh, smart city would be, you know, you don't really have to worry about paying your parking because once you stop at a spot through a car, your license plate recognition, you know, your credit card is automatically charged, you know, those type of things. That's a smart city concept. So it's a whole connectedness that comes into play. And then also the uh, robots, right? So uh, 
So there's a lot of different things with robotics that can play, that can come into play for AI uh, for vision systems. And and uh, there's components that are going to also factory floor, as well as drones and the like. Right? So that's all what's known as vision systems. And that is by far our largest market. So today, that's where our customers uh, end up using our products. And this is where you have a lot of the, you know, what's known as convolutional neural nets or deep neural nets that are being deployed. So it's a specific type of algorithm that we end up utilizing um, and that customers uh, use for implementing their networks within these domains or these markets. The second is the um, banking and financial sector. And the banking and financial sector, still early days there. Um, that's a sector that's focused on looking at things like, you know, portfolio balancing, uh, looking at risk analysis, right, across the various trading desks. That's looking at things like valuation adjustment, which happens on a regular basis, right? These are based, and these are typically based on time series convolutional networks, uh, which are similar to vision networks. And they're also based on um, things like chatbots. And those are more based on things like what you said, Lord language models. So, so that's where, you know, the, these engagements would, would um, come into play. And where we work with them is typically for people that want to do on their private cloud, which is their own owned cloud or on on-premises uh, data centers. So that's really our engagement model. The third is the data center themselves. And the data center here would be things like, you know, natural language processing, uh, things like a recommender system. Uh, so if you want to do AI as a service, right? So if you want to do inference as a service, that's really a data center play, right? So those are the market areas that we would engage with. And it, it would also include on-premises server work, you know, people like the drug discovery guys or some other components that would want to use AI to help their in internal processes. So we we work with such customers as well. And then the last one is the government systems. And the government systems have a myriad of use cases, including some of the labs that want to go look at some fundamental research. And so we work with them as well. So those are the four markets that uh, we play in. And those are the four markets that tend to look at us and come to us for the really high throughput of AI inferencing that we offer. And this could probably be a podcast episode in itself, but I'm I'm interested to is is there like a fundamental difference between the chips that Untether is building versus like Nvidia with GPUs? Are those different? I'm not super familiar with the chip space, but how are those fundamentally different? And I saw an article you mentioned something called the von Neumann architecture. Is that like how you kind of design chips? And are are you using that? Are you doing something different? Just Maybe just kind of high level, like how are they fundamentally different? Sure. So the GPUs were done with graphics. That's why they're called graphics processing units, right? That's the GPU terminology. They were done with graphics for video games in mind. And the approach that GPUs used is a, is a traditional approach called the von Neumann approach. And the von Neumann approach uh, really stems from a uh, paper that was written in the 1940s, if you can imagine. Uh, and and it had this architecture, which was really innovative because it's still in use today. Uh, it's an architecture called the load store architecture. What that means is you have memory on the outside, and then you bring the data in through these long and narrow pipelines or buses into 
the chip itself and the chip has a cache. A cache is a place where it stores memory and then it uh, stores data, I should say. And then from the cache, it then gets fed into the various processing elements or the arithmetic units. And so that's a very traditional approach. And that's what, you know, GPUs are based on, CPUs are based on, all right, lots of different technologies are based on. The, uh, that approach is really very useful and has been useful for the world, right? For the past 80 years or whatever the uh, period of time, actually maybe say 60 years since the semiconductors have been around and, and it's still in play and it still has a lot of value. It's used with CPUs for all your computers. It's used for communications, right? The communications we're having through 5G or whatever else is based on traditional von Neumann architecture. And it works really well in a lot of different applications. It also works reasonably well for AI training. Um, but for AI inference, the challenge with that architecture is it's simple. Remember the load store component that I told you where there's memory on the outside and then there's this large long bus that brings the data into the chip. Just the data movement makes up more than 90% of the power that goes into that chip. So the the electric power that you're sending in to power up the chip, only 9% of that is used for AI processing. So you can imagine that's a hugely wasteful approach in terms of efficiency and, and where energy is going to go. And as AI gets deployed uh, globally, the way we think it should be, it's going to put a huge drain on the world's energy resources if something else is not done about it. And that's where Untether comes in with its act memory compute architecture. What we did was instead of having memory on the outside, a cache on the inside of the chip, and then feeding into the various processing elements, we put the memory and the processing elements right next to each other. And so they're so close to each other that, you know, what you, what I would term in a von Neumann architecture, the, the memory on the outside to the cache on the inside. You can think of that as a alleyway in terms of, you know, a car analogy of how much you can send data through. And, uh, and for us, you know, we, because we put the data and memory, so sorry, yeah, the processing and memory so close to each other, we can have the equivalent of a hundred lane freeway right, between the two. And so we can move vast amounts of data and very fast. And that's how we can help solve the potential crisis that the world's going to face if we continue deploying with traditional von Neumann architectures for the various use cases that are here. Even the example of ChatGPT is a good one. And uh, there's a lot of similar use cases when AI really starts getting embedded across everything we do. I'd be curious from kind of a growth and scaling kind of sales perspective, you know, you are doing that project with General Motors. What does it look like is this something, is this a product that someone can just kind of come to you off the shelf? Hey, I want a hundred of these and I'm just going to take them and, and run. Or is it really something that you have to really build these deep partnerships, like embed the chips, your software, the technology? I guess I'm just very curious of like, how does this scale? How do you make sure that, you know, like every company out there is using Untether? Yeah. So a semiconductor player is a business to business player. Right. So we end up selling to other businesses that then incorporate this and other things into a usable model that they then sell maybe to another business player or more likely to another cost, to a consumer. 
And the approach then is we have a standard off-the-shelf product that any of these businesses that have the ability or need to pull together their own solutions would then say, hey, Untether, can I buy that chip from you? And, you know, can you provide me the SDK? And I, this is what I'm going to go do with it. And we're like, sure, I've had it and, and, and keep going. So, uh, so then, you know, that's where we end up, for example, with vision systems, as I, as I, uh, talked about earlier for autonomous vehicles, we, we have a partnership that you alluded to with uh, General Motors and the GM partnership is more to figure out how we can help them for their next generation perception systems, which is a key component of your autonomous vehicle future. And so what we would work with on GM is we would have the silica, the, the chip that they could incorporate. We might even give them a card that they can plug into their computer, right? So it'll be a PCI Express based card. And we have some level of software that is the SDK that allows the network to run on our chip that we would also provide to GM. And then GM would then translate that into, okay, how am I going to make this into a test vehicle that I can then put into, you know, one of these cars that I'm using to run this? How do I then connect up all the cameras, the radar, the LIDAR type of inputs, and then run that AI processing through Untethered? Right, so that's why it becomes a partnership. They, you know, partnership's a very loosely used term, uh, but in this case, what I mean by partnership is, you know, we work together very closely, right? And and that's how then they take it forward into their uh, end product. Now, not every engagement needs to be like that because if that's the case, our ability to scale becomes challenging, right? It'll be dependent on how many uh, employees we have that we can then throw at, at such uh, examples. But it's you know, you kind of do that as a first or second step with a few customers that allows us to show how it could be done, potentially, uh, not necessarily the know-how of what our customers are doing, because that's their intellectual property, but more in terms of telling our customers to come in later to say, yep, we're capable of doing it. And we hope by then that, you know, a GM or somebody else would have allowed us to use their name and then can say that's our reference, right? So from that perspective, Customers are like, okay, great. I know how I need to do this. Let me let me add it. Let me go, right? So, so the goal is to, move, uh, and we are moving towards that more standard off-the-shelf product, where customers can come in and say, okay, I want to buy this, and let's go. Now, typically, the way the buying process happens is, anybody that's interested in Untether, once we've had that engagement happen, is they come in and do a proof of concept with us, where where it's the equivalent of you know kicking the tires, taking the car for the test drive type of thing. That's a proof of concept. And once they are done with the proof of concept and they're happy with how you know, our engine handles or, or our chip handles uh, to all their workloads, they come back and say, okay, I'm ready to go take this into production. And that's when they come in and start saying, you know, it's not about can I get 10 of those or 100 of those? It's more like I want to get 1,000 of those or 5,000 of those uh, per year right, or per quarter, whatever the case may be. I'd also be curious about, like, a feedback loop from, like, a product perspective. Like, if you look at something like like Twitter, for example, if they needed to make a product change, it's, you know, maybe some people coding, maybe it takes 24 hours, and they push it. What does that look like in a chip perspective? Like, you're working with General Motors or any other partner, and they have the chip, and they're like, hey, can the chip be more like this or like that? Like, 
Is that an important thing in hardware to have that feedback loop? Or is it you're just really designing the best product you can and you know you kind of you, you use software on top of that? I'm just kind of curious on like how do you make product changes? Yeah, that's a great question. Typically what you do is you end up with a reasonably flexible platform that allows you to make product changes from software alone. But there are times that that's not possible, right? So from our perspective, as an example, we could go off and do a variety of different types of nets. We could do, you know, the convolutional neural nets or the deep neural nets, or we could do an actual language processing nets, or we could do, you know, like a recommender system or linear algebra or any of those. And we could do that with the chip we have. And the software is how you then make the modifications to do any type of network within those domains. But now let's say you want to do something very different, which is I want to um, change the input into the chip. Right. We typically use PCI Express. Uh, if a customer comes in and says, I don't want to use PCI Express, I want to use, let's say, uh, UCI Express, which is a new one for chiplets. And that's not an interface that we have. There's no amount of software work that'll hide that. You either have a physical interface that works or you don't. It's similar to, you know, you have a your TV with HDMI cables, right? And so you plug in your HDMI cable into your TV and that's how you can, you can transmit data into your TV. And of course you can change channels on your TV through the remote, which has software uh, built into it, et cetera. But no amount of remote changing allows you to plug in a coax cable into your HDMI slot. It just doesn't work, right? So, so we have to go off and physically redo a, a, the design to make such an uh, interface happen. So there are examples like those where customers give us that feedback and that feedback is extremely valuable. And we take that feedback and we put it into our next generation product. So our first generation product, Run AI, we introduced in, I think, 2021. And our second generation product, which is Speed AI, is coming out this year. So you can imagine that it's a two-year window from when a customer says, I want to make, I want this change to the time when a chip company can say, well, okay, fine, we've incorporated that change. So it, it can be a hugely messy process because you're always looking at what, you know, you're coming up with something today on what you heard two years ago. So it's always a tricky thing to make sure that you can look forward and say, not only am I thinking about what I need today, but I have to project out to what's necessary in two years, but more important, what's necessary in four or five years, because that's really when our chips really go into full volume production with our customers. And I think that's a nice segue with like looking forward for or five years. And I know both of us were at Collision last week in Toronto, and I felt like every company there was AI in some sense. And we've seen NVIDIA's stock price go up like crazy, mostly based off of AI. I guess, like, what are your thoughts on, you know, the market? Like, you know, definitely there's a lot of hype. There's a lot of interest around artificial intelligence and different companies using it. And you mentioned earlier, you know, kind of your four categories you're focused on, and those seem to be very narrow and focused and thought out. Is that just something that you're kind of sticking with, with those core categories? And you see those as the main driver for your business specifically. And how do you not kind of get lost in maybe this hype and the excitement there? Yeah, so AI is a fundamental change in the marketplace. It's going to be something that's very uh, pervasive, and it's going to be here right through the rest of our life and 
continues to move forward in the future. To give you some monetary examples, just to make sure that that number is reasonably understood. You know, the chip world is about a 500 to $600 billion a year industry. And AI today is probably about, I think it's creeping up to about four, maybe up to 5% of that. Just think about it. Four to 5% of a $600 billion industry. That's all AI is today with all the hype that's surrounding it. Right. By the end of the decade, the chip industry is going to be a trillion dollar industry. And my expectation is that you know, AI continues to become a larger part of it. And my expectation, my prognostication is that it's going to be in the you know, 40 to 50% range of the chip world by then. So if you project the actual numbers, you know, that would translate to the AI portion of the chip world being almost as large as the entire chip world today. So it's not a hype from that perspective. It's something that's here to stay. And the reason why there's so much value added to it is because it can spawn a larger multiplier effect on the revenues that others can generate on top of the chip itself. Right? So the example of OpenAI uh, or anybody else running on GPUs, right? the amount of revenue that they can generate far surpasses the amount of revenue that the GPU guy makes for themselves. And it's a order, not two orders of magnitude higher, right? Somewhere between one to two orders of magnitude higher, 10 to 100x higher. And, and so there's a huge amount of value generation that's available in the industry. And that's why, you know, the, the hype usually is a way of catching it before the value generation actually happens, because then you're picking the winners from the losers early on, right? That's kind of how the stock market works. And that's why you've seen quite a few of the AI players. I mean, NVIDIA is one of the most famous ones, but there are a lot of AI players whose stock has risen and risen rapidly because of the AI component that comes into play. I love to touch on manufacturing and, you know, I, I've seen Intel make a larger investment. I, I believe there's a, a factory kind of being built in Arizona or close to com completion. Uh, and maybe manufacturing also kind of maybe in a Canadian context. I guess I'd just love to learn a bit more about, you know, I know there's even a book called Chip Wars on just like where chips should be manufactured and who's manufacturing them and, and the battle for that. I guess, you know, it, does does Canada have any chip? Factoring capability, should we have more? I think there has been some articles I saw floating around focus on that. I guess we just like to talk a bit more about manufacturing and the importance of like where that's located, if that is even important. If you think about the semiconductor startup or a chip company startup being not for the faint of heart, then think about the manufacturing of semiconductors as extremely not for the faint of heart. Because what I told you, which is, you know, we need about $400 million plus or minus for running a successful chip company to, to its, uh, you know, where it can stand on its own two feet. For a manufacturing foundry, you, that number is close to $25 billion. It's a humongous, yeah. humongous investment, right? It's, it's definitely not for the faint of heart amongst any government. So, so then it really becomes, you know, how much of that do you need to own on your own? on your shore and how much of that can you partner with others um, the thing that worked really well for tsmc was 
you know, the government and the industry, uh, industry partnership uh, in Taiwan 30, 40 years ago really led to the formation of TSMC, which then on its own was able to continue expanding and expanding really well. Of course, the current tensions between China and the U.S. and others really is moving to saying, okay, can we rely upon TSMC or Taiwan, to be uh, clear, to continue to be independent and have our chips being manufactured there? Or do we want to do something different where we can bring it? And so that's where the, the CHIPS Act of the U.S., the CHIPS Act of Europe really all came into play. And each one of those are about $50 billion, right? And if you were to deploy that entirety of $50 billion, you can build two fabs, right? So it's not like you're out there saying, I can satisfy all the chip manufacturing um, requirements of all the semiconductor companies in the U.S. through the chip, CHIPS Act that was built. But it's more of a jump starter. And the jump starter is to say, okay, if we can have a fab, then the fab or the foundry, sorry, the fab is a fabrication plant and it's uh, frequently known as a foundry. So, uh, and the words are used on, uh, interchangeably. So when I say foundry or fab, it's the same. So what ends up happening with, with the fab is, you know, you, once you, the deployment for, the capital deployment for opening the fab is ridiculously large that not many people can afford it. But once it's opened, then it can be profitable. And then it can start generating enough profit so it can on its own go off and do the next fab or the expansion to the fab, right? So that's kind of how these CHIPS Act um, help us grow. Specifically for Canada, I think the first and foremost thing, and, and this has uh, been a challenge, is I don't know that the government really recognizes semiconductors as very, very critical for the country's success, right? It's the, it's the DNA that supplies the growth engine, right? That's kind of how I look at semiconductors because of the multiplier effect I told you earlier. And, and so you really have to do things to enable the semiconductor uh, industry before you go off and say, I'm going to have my own manufacturing component because you could still have a manufacturing plant in Canada and yet all the innovation happens in a different different parts of the world and you're just a manufacturing entity it's useful to have the manufacturing know-how don't get me wrong but it's not going to uh, take away that ability of saying semiconductors are the DNA of our growth right so so I really think there's a lot more that could be done with respect to what Canada can help uh, companies like ours and you know companies like ours and competitors to us too, right? To flourish and and make that happen uh, in a way that you know we want to we want to grow. And if we grow, by definition, you know we're making it happen through being a Canadian company. And so the value generation of that comes back into Canada because we're hiring there. The products that we create, the IP creation resides there, right? All of that is a very positive virtuous cycle. I'd love to touch on both the things you mentioned there, hiring and IP. I think we'll go with hiring first, but what's that talent pool look like? I, I feel like, you know, chips, manufacturing, hardware is very unique. Uh, have you found, you know, some strong talent in Toronto? And I know yourself and you also have an office in the Bay Area. Are those kind of the two main talent pools or is there other places? I guess I'm just interested in, Where's the talent coming from and what is talent look like specifically for Untether? 
when I joined on Tether um, four years ago, I, you know, when I was introduced to Untether and, and then I eventually joined the company, I was like, okay, I think in about six months, I'm going to move the company from Toronto to the Bay Area because, hey, we live in Silicon Valley. We create silicon. Guess what? It needs to be here, right? And why would I be able to find any hardware talent in, in Toronto? Because that makes no sense. I was very surprised, right? In a positive way. I was very surprised. That, you know, when I came in, started looking at the talent, we'd hired the talent that wanted to come join us, um, that in within six months, I was like, you know what, we are going to be headquartered in Toronto. Our base is going to stay in Canada and we'll only fill in gaps outside of Canada, right? That's, that's really how I moved um, my mindset, which really is, is, is a testament to the strength of the talent pool that's available. And why is there such a strong talent pool? Well, from a software perspective, it's pretty well known. Canada, Toronto in particular, has a very strong, um, you know, notion of software engineers, particularly for AI, from University of Toronto, University of Waterloo, right? L lots of local universities that can feed into it, but also outside of Toronto as well. There's lots of universities that are, uh, you know, churn churning out a lot of the software engineers with AI in particular as uh, something they can do. What's also interesting is there's a lot of hardware engineers coming out of these same universities. And what they end up doing is they move to the U.S. because that's really where the opportunities are. And what we're doing is we're saying, hey, you don't have to. You know, we have places here. And the reason why people are moving to U.S., right, there are large multinational companies that do have... Um, offices in, in Canada, but typically those are the adjunct arms. The main decision-making, the main technical decision-making, I should say, happens at the headquarters in the U.S. or in Europe or wherever else. And so the adjunct arms are implementing the technical decisions that are made elsewhere. And so, you know, as an engineer, you kind of chafe with that because you're like, look, I know what needs to happen. I know, you know, what we need to do. And I don't want to sit here being told by someone 3,000 miles away or whatever on, and well, you know, here's the small component that you're going to go work on. Don't worry about the big picture. I'll deal with it. And, and so one of the big changes that, you know, not changes, but the big uh, focus items for us is we said, we're going to house our software and hardware centers of excellence within the same location. So they can talk to each other, learn from each other, influence each other. And that's very unique to Untether because you won't find that from pretty much any other large company or startup um, that's in Canada that can say, hey, we put together the center of mass, center of excellence, both of those right next to each other where they can sit together and work. So, so most of our people are in Canada. About 75% of our people are in Canada. About 20 5% of them are in the U.S. and, and some outside of the, uh, outside of North America. And then you mentioned IP there, and we can maybe t uh, quickly touch on that. You know, what's the importance of the IP that, you know, Untether is creating? Like, you know, you're creating a whole new, you know, architecture for building chips that are used in a whole new way. How important is that IP for Canada and to kind of remain in the country? Intellectual property, by by its nature, well, attracts a lot of talent. So the more intellectual property stays within a country, you know, on its own, IP 
belongs to a company, whether that company stays in Canada or not is secondary. But the fact is, uh, the IP allows the company to hire more people and the IP allows the company to innovate even further. And so you're bringing in more like-minded innovators together. And that's how you create this, this you know, virtuous cycle of continued value generation for any given country. So the IP component becomes really, really important because of that element. Uh, there is, of course, the trade wars element that you know, at some point may come into play, but most for-profit companies are not thinking about trade war elements. Right. Most for-profit companies are thinking about, okay, how can I be uh, put, put myself in a position where I can continue protecting the assets that I created and I can continue to grow those assets and, and in, expand my moat of protection as I do that growth. And so that's really the focus for how IP can be useful for Canada, which is if we can continue expanding that innovation though that creates that that patent or IP uh, from that perspective is really you know where the value creation would happen I'd love to jump into the quick fire round and I'd love to know what your favorite book is and if you don't have a favorite maybe just something you've read recently the book I read recently um, this had to do with uh, it's called dark market and this had to do with how the whole um, uh, you know, card skimmer operation works uh, within within the within the. It's actually a global thing, and it's a good example of how pervasive connectivity can help. And it can help the criminal mind, but it can also help the virtuous mind, right? So it it just goes to show that you know, again, these are very innovative people. That if you were to put put them into place in the right way, uh, you can actually end up you know doing things for the better than things for the worse. What are you most excited about in the next 12 months personally and professionally? Our company is coming out with our second generation product that's coming out this year. The market response to that has been extremely favorable. We're, you know, we have a lot of customers waiting to say, okay, when can I get my hands on, on that product? So we're very excited to make that happen, right? Actually complete the product, uh, which will come out later this year and get into the hands of our customers and then get that out into their products. That's, that's really going to be super exciting. And then personally, I really, I'm looking at the world at large and saying, okay, how does AI continue to help us? Because AI is such a pervasive thing that, you know, what's limiting it is the human imagination. And, and I'm looking forward to seeing, you know, what the next thing is going to be that's going to come out, that's going to be done through AI. And then the last question I ask all my guests is, how do you deal with hard times? You know, being a CEO of a very innovative company that has, you know, a multinational perspective, driving a new industry, those can be challenging. That can be challenging. How do you deal with it? Do you have any tactics you've learned through your career, your life that help you out? There's definitely a lot of stress uh, as you go through and try to do all the things you need to do. And, you know, for me, uh, I look at, there are things that, that I have to have built up to come to this point where I can deal with the stress that comes uh, with, uh, with a role like this. And a lot of that comes through family. Right? Family is a very key component of how, how you can you know, uh, deal with stress, but also personal health. Right? So going to the gym, working out, or playing tennis, or any of those types of uh, areas, or reading. Right? So those are, to me, those are all my outlets, uh, my passion of things outside of work. 
And having passions outside of work is also a way of being able to manage the, the harder aspects of your job. So that's what I would recommend for people, which is, you know, have multiple dimensions versus just a work dimension. That's great advice. Arun, this has been a lot of fun. I've, I've personally learned a ton. I really appreciate you breaking everything down. Super exciting conversation. And thanks again for coming on. Thank you. Thanks. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to subscribe, share with friends, and reach out with guest suggestions. Make sure to follow me on Twitter, LinkedIn, and subscribe to our newsletter on Substack to keep up to date.